0: Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Cheese lovers, cheese professionals, began building our library of cheese books. There are a few staples that we all invest in first, like Mastering Cheese by Max McCallman, The Cheese Primer by Steve Jenkins, and of course, Cheese and Culture, the seminal cheese history book by today's guest, Dr. Paul Kinstead. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. And welcome, Dr. Kinstead. Thank you so much for coming on the show again.
2: It's great to be here.
1: Awesome. The last time you were here was episode 90, talking about the book I just mentioned, Cheese and Culture, History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civ. And now here we are at episode 284, having you back again. So I'm sure we have a lot to catch up on. Uh, (laughs) For those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Kinstett and his work, he's a professor at the University of Vermont, where his primary research relates to the chemistry, crystallography, and structure and function of cheese. He's also the author of another must-read cheese book, American Farmstead Cheese, a practical guide to making and selling artisan cheeses, in which there's a chapter about cheese history that was essentially expanded to turn into cheese and culture. So my first question for you is one that I'm sure many of our listeners are asking themselves right now, and that is, what is crystallography as it relates to cheese, and why is that a primary area of your research?
2: Yeah, great question. Crystals form in, you know, a number of different families of cheese just naturally. They're, 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 uh, they they occur over time, particularly in ripened cheeses. And, and usually the longer a cheese ripens, the more vulnerable it is or susceptible to crystallization. And, uh, you know, so what's the relevance of crystals in cheese? Well, both in terms of, of the visual properties of the cheese. You can see these things if they yeah. get big enough, and they can be really um, um, misinterpreted in some cases. And that my early research on crystals was looking at, at them as, as really a defect on the surface of cheeses. Back when I was working with large industrial cheesemakers, yep. and, and they didn't want to have these fluffy white crystals on the surface of, of cheddar cheese in particular because it would be mistaken for mold growth or some kind of spoilage by, by the, the public. And so uh, I spent a lot of time in the 2000s studying ways to prevent crystallization. But more recently, we've turned the tables and really looked at crystals as a, a positive attribute because they also, in many cheeses, are, are really... Part of the signature of the cheese, in terms of texture and, and sort of crunchiness and and grating um, properties, and so forth. Uh, and they also are, are really a beautiful feature if you know what they are and don't you know, aren't intimidated by uh, you know misconceptions that they may be spoilers. They're natural sort of badges of honor, I would call yeah. them, in terms of you know a long-aged cheese that has really gone through that long ripening process. Yeah, other positive things and then, and then the other thing about crystals that, that uh, we're really just beginning to appreciate is in some cheeses, the formation of crystals have collateral effects, you know profound effects on on texture properties that that are above and beyond you know the, the, the impact that the crystals have on your tongue it, you know particularly in, the, in the, the white mold, bloomy rind type cheeses, the yeah. washed rind cheeses. That softening process, which is so essential to the character of the cheese the, from the surface inwards, that's being driven by crystallization at the surface. And we, we're really beginning to understand how important crystals are in cover, governing and controlling that process. So for all these reasons, it's a, it's a fun thing to study.
1: I agree like as a, as a cheesemonger, say back in the, in the day, um, maybe like in the mid90s you know i was asked I was asking about crystals in cheese, you know because I would have uh, Dutch cheese like gouda you know yeah. and, uh, and I would have Gruyere that had little crunchy bits, and people you know I, I never as as a cheesemonger, never looked at it as a defect, I, and then the customers always came to me and that, so they were like. Do you have the, what, what are these little crunchy bits that I love? And um, in my own way, um, and how it was explained to me back then, is I was like, well, these the salts or the amino acids are like grouping together and then trying to push their way out or as as they band together, but it's um, it's probably a terrible way to to explain it. Now I have well,
2: that's not bad. It's actually pretty close.
1: <laughs> that's good. That's good. I, I feel better about that.
2: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so how did you come to specialize in this area?
2: Well, uh, you know, because um, at one point in the in the early two thousands, it was a very fundable area. Yeah. Because the industrial cheesemakers were trying to eradicate these crystals on cheddar. And so it was easy, relatively speaking, to get research funds and to have a, a research program. And that really got me interested in, in crystals. But then uh, um, it was really in, in 2012, after the, the, the money and the funding for you know, eradicating calcium lactate crystals on cheddar had kind of dried up. And there yeah. wasn't really very much opportunity to continue that line of research. I happened to be at a—I um, was giving a keynote address in Sicily at a right a, a conference of of the uh, Worldwide Traditional Cheeses Association. This is the first meeting of this new association that's that's uh, was put together. Um, to to really focus on traditional cheeses worldwide and and the needs the research needs and the, the education needs of those traditional cheesemakers, uh, and and at that meeting there were folks from all over the world great great cheesemakers and cheese scientists and and I was talking about my crystal research and and was getting you know all this feedback like you just gave me a moment ago that oh they love crystals yeah they, you know they they want to Use some of these methodologies to to uh, study crystals in a positive right. um, light, and and I woke up in the middle of the night because I had been struggling at at this point in 2011, 2012. What am I going to? How am I going to continue to fund my research program? Certainly. And and I, I woke up and, and, and just you know it was like an epiphany, like Archimedes in the bathtub. Yeah, that's eureka great. Um, I know you know I can study. Crystals from a pot. There's a whole series of questions that wait that remain to be answered out there. If you look at crystals in the right light, and that's that, really became the the uh, catalyst to develop a program to look at crystals positively. What
1: what kind of discoveries have you in crystallography have been made since you were last here in 2012 and around that time? Like, what's the positive effect? How did you turn that around?
2: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, one one of the things. We're finding out there, there are players in different families of cheese, crystal types that, that right. we didn't even realize were were there, and that are important. For example, in in uh, uh, you know grana Italian cheeses, Parmigiano Reggiano, yeah. grana padano types, uh, and, and 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 various cheeses in that style. Yeah, there are are, are you know significant um, elements there that that we call pearls or or these. these Spherical structures that have leucine crystals mm-hmm. as part of the structure, and and these things are prominent, you know, very pr- prevalent in in these grana cheeses, also in really long-aged Gouda cheeses, yeah, and Edam, and and, EDEM. Um, and, and um, you know, we had no idea that that, that leucine crystallization was part of the, the makeup of these these elements, which are very important for the textural properties, uh, you know, the grating properties, the granularity of these types of cheeses.
1: They seem like they would also be. Like those are those ones I always identified. They look like snowflakes. You know, they're really visible as opposed to the little sort of pinprick ones that I see in uh, in Gruyere. And I always wondered. I always thought that that was because of the way that the curds were worked in the cheese making process. But it's probably more um, in terms of its way. It's the way the cheese is, uh, the milk is cultured in the very beginning process, and the way the curds are cut. Is that or is that is that somewhere? somewhere that along seems,
2: there? Yeah, that seems to be, you know, as, as we, we study these things and, and try and understand where they come from, what, what the causative factors are. But, you know, the little hard ones are typically tyrosine, right. which are, are amino acids, as as you've explained, where the, they, they crystallize into these very large, hard entities that you can feel, and they're, they're crunchy. The, 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 the pearls and some of the fluffy... Um, Crystal entities are often are, are lysine, which are coming from um, you know, particular cultures, we believe, that form this amino acid preferentially. Lysine, right. oh, sorry, leucine, not lysine. Leucine uh, is an amino acid like tyrosine, uh, and if it accumulates to high enough concentrations due to the proteolysis that's mm-hmm. being driven by the cultures and the microflora and the microbiota, then, uh, then leucine will crystallize very differently from tyrosine, and you get this other type of entity forming. And the, the openness of the texture um, seems to play a role. there has been some, some excellent work done in Italy just recently by good friends and colleagues there that um, have, have identified that as, as you know, little micro openings in the structure as very important for the formation of these, these entities.
1: Yeah, that, that there's, yeah, that's that's or just working, you know, it's, I work from the perspective of a cheesemonger, you know. So I'm always trying to deconstruct and be economical with my time. You know, yep. so and yeah. um, what, what something would be really helpful in a question that I think would uh, for the cheesemongers that are out and listening to us is so if a person comes up to us at the counter and they say, "What are these crystals?" Uh, without um, I could always refer them to this podcast, which I would like to do. But um, what's the most economical way for a cheesemonger to be to explain that to a customer or to a fellow cheesemonger?
2: yeah that, that that's a great question. We, we ought to put together a, a, a kind of a you know a, a catalog of, right of, of, of images of crystals you know at the visible state where you can see them and and a descriptive identity of what they are and, and what we know about where they come from uh, I, I you know I've, I've had this thought ever since 2012 in the middle of the night when I woke up having my epiphany of, of at, at major cheese mongers, cheese shops, you know, big blown-up photographs of, of different crystals they're really beautiful to look at actually yeah they're and,
1: they're uh, incredible i've actually seen some microscopic ima- like some images of them they're really neat <laughs> they're,
2: they're they're absolutely gorgeous and and they're a selling point I believe a positive attribute
1: well they one hundred percent are i mean I have never once i wonder that wonder in in terms of that what why were they looked upon as a defect simply because the industrial makers were trying to make a, something with a uniform texture that could, consumers could could you know not mistake for something that was wrong. Is that what it was? You
2: know? Correct. That that in in industrial cheese making, uniformity is everything. Yeah. Uh. And any anything that, that that upsets the the apple cart, that looks different, or or tastes different, or or uh, you know feels different in the in, in the palate, is uh, is threatening. Um, uniformity is everything. So when you have these fluffy crystals or this this kind of a of a film, a, you know, a smear of, of white haze on the surface of yeah. the cheese. The customer for that type of cheese is not accustomed to, to differences and they you know the default assumption is, oh, there's something wrong with this. It must be mold or, or something else. The other thing, and this, this is an issue, sometimes crystals can be, you know, very positive attribute when they're present at the right level, right. right size, but if they get too big, even in long age you know, raw milk cheddar, yeah. you, can have, you can have internally calcium lactate crystals that, that become very, very large and they're very hard, and even you know, sort of um, um, discriminating customers um, can mistake them for a foreign object or yeah, totally. intimidated by these things.
1: Well, the, the thing is, you know, you want you want a certain uniformity in the texture of cheese, always, both as a consumer and a, and a cheesemonger, because when you have something, the, those crystals, they 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 take up room, and when you're breaking down a cheese, if they are large like that, if you have like an old Gouda or like a really old Parmigiano, they, they sort of they, they break the – you aren't able to break the cheese down completely properly, you know, and yeah. they get a little sort of oily or like pussy around the edge, and that's that's not good. Right. It
2: does change. That's right. It does change. You know, various attributes of the cheese in ways that, you know, you go too far in in terms. Of too much of a good thing is not a good thing.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, it's an interesting clock. You know what I mean? Cheese to me is uh, is such a great timekeeper. You know, and um, it is. Uh, it's yeah. it's amazing. Um, it's just this wonderful like hourglass, frozen hourglass. You know that, but but still stuff is going on. So, I mean. It, It's... I understand... A little bit you know the, I always mess up the science I always do you know oh, you're,
2: you're, doing, you're doing great so far.
1: <laughs> that's because I was trained not to say anything wrong on this particular <laughs> episode um, no but that's that's fantastic so the answer I guess in the short the short way is to um, as a cheesemonger is to just um, assure them I guess that nothing is wrong that there are a few types of crystals involved in the cheese making process that happen as a result of the cheese making process and for people to enjoy them. Does that sound, right, sound about right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you know, the, the burden is on, you know, the academic research community to put together, you know, visual and and written aids to help cheesemongers, retailers, understand what the crystals are, identify them, and communicate that to their, to their customers. You know, so I, I would love to put together one of my pet projects before I retire is to Put together, you know, some kind of a scorecard. Here's all the crystals that we know about. Here's what they look like. Here's what we know about them, and you know, show these things to your your customers when when questions come up or, or whatever. A um, well, little little encyclopedia of crystals.
1: Uh, that would be that would be absolutely amazing. I would appreciate that. Um, and. Uh, until then, I'm just going to stick with my original story, which you have validated, and I really appreciate that.
2: <laughs> yep. No, I think you're you're in good shape.
1: Awesome. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk a little bit about climate change as it results, as it refers to cheesemaking.
2: Hold
0: on. Right. Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Souchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin, make this gorgeous alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Green County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Souchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sershoi is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com.
1: I like it when cheese is described as a love child. That really just that really just makes me happy. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live in the Heritage Radio Network. This is Greg Blaze and on the line we have Dr. Paul Kinstead, author and professor at the University of Vermont. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about cheese crystallography, which is super interesting, and an area of research for Dr. Kinstead. In the second half, I wanted to talk to you more about your research in cheese history and how that's been influenced by your science-based scholarship that we were talking about a tiny bit before the break. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how these two different ideas of research come together for you?
2: Yeah, it's it's been amazing in the last five years or so, and it really it goes back to this meeting I mentioned earlier. Yeah,
1: in Sicily. Sicily yeah, I want to talk to you about that.
2: where I was I was you know speaking at on uh, on on my research and on cheese and culture basically, and uh, one of the other keynote speakers at uh, at the meeting was. Um, person by the name of that's g yeah Skarod,
1: mongolian gentleman
2: yeah who's, who's uh she is a, a Ooh, mongolian i am maker. so
1: sorry mongolian lady i'm sorry and, and yep and um <laughs> i'm the worst she's all
2: she's all <laughs> also a member member of the the national dairy program for mongolia she's a, you know she's a, a government official and member of the international dairy federation and she had just come off uh, a, a, a an assignment dealing with a a humanitarian crisis aid yeah. relief in Mongolia, because of what was happening to the nomadic cheesemakers, the nomads in Mongolia, um, who were in crisis and still are in crisis, uh, because of, of you know, climate fluctuation and environmental deterioration. Um, and and uh, she gave a very impassioned uh, talk about about you know what's happening in Mongolia, that this, this absolute crisis in this. Long-standing traditional nomadic cheese-making culture that that um, is about to disappear because of, of you know these, these catastrophic changes in climate and the environment, and she sort of you know gave a plea to the world to to sit up and listen about climate change and, and look at what's happening in Mongolia. And I had a chance to talk with her after the meeting a couple times, and we just we just chatted. And I was astonished at, at, you know, this story that I had not heard about, and this crisis going on. And I, I, I said to, to Setshi that, that when I got back to the United States, I will do what I can. I promise you, to yeah. try and spread the word to my country, to raise the level of awareness um, about about what's going on. And so I, I returned to the U.S. in February of 2012. And had a lot of interviews because Cheese and Culture was just about to be released, and I was right. sort of on the speaking trail, and and um, I tried to slip this in, you know, what's going on in Mongolia in, in, in television, radio interviews, and it never went anywhere. That you know, there was wasn't a lot of
0: of, of
2: reaction, and I and I and I, I couldn't. I was disappointed. So, anyways, you know, time goes on, and I start my cheese crystal research program, and and we get to 2015, last year, last summer, and I'm I'm eligible for another sabbatical leave, and so much has happened in the cheese history area um, that could add to cheese and culture, and there was so much that was left undone in the first edition of Cheese and Culture that I decided to write a sabbatical application to prepare a second edition of Cheese and Culture. And as part of that second edition, I endeavored to make climate change and how it's affected cheesemaking during the last 10,000 years, and cheesemakers in profound ways over and over again. Climate change, climate fluctuation, how how profound it's been, and then to use Mongolia and what's been happening there in the last 100 years and tracking back for the last 10,000 years as, as a case study for us to look at how absolutely monumental climate change has been in our past as, as a, a human species and, and the precipice that we're standing on right now in terms of, of the uncertainty of the future. Um, wake up, folks! Yeah, know. no kidding. And, and and the hope is that cheese is engaging enough that 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 it will you will get an audience to listen to this a little bit more. And I know there's a lot of interest out there in climate change, but there's still, as you know, all this pushback.
1: That, it's very crazy. That, I, I that, don't understand it. I mean, it it some of it is natural because the sun expands. You know what I mean? The stars expand, and it,
2: it's been happening. <laughs> you know for but regardless of whether it's human induced or natural right. and it's been happening you know all of of the earth's history sure. and and in the last 10,000 years that that human you know human civilizations have really been developing the effects have been absolutely profound and catastrophic yeah. and if if human activity is going to add to the uncertainty of the natural fluxes that occur we have to take that Seriously, that's that's my position. And
1: well, I, I agree with it. And, you, and the thing is, when you, tech, when you talk about cheese and cheese made in Mongolia, you have ten. You know, you said you have you have ten thousand years, right? Is that what you're saying? Like you have like
2: you yeah, have. You tra- you tra- I mean, what I'm doing is tracking back. Way back. How, how did cheese making start there? And you really yeah. have to track back all the way to, to the very beginning of cheese making in the in, you know in in, in Southwest Asia, the near right. East. Earl crescent and and there is a thread that is continue it is amazing yeah. one of the big questions when we started cheese and culture and, and the the concept is did cheesemaking originate in one place and then spread everywhere right. else right. or did it originate independently in lots of different places and and so there's lots of different origins and one of the big questions that I didn't wasn't able to address in the first edition was was the whole Eurasian steppes you know, yeah. into Mongolia and that whole herding, you know, traditional nomadic cheesemaking there, and up into Tibet. And where did that come from? And and I think now we've got some answers in terms of the flow of, of history. And and now that's about to disappear after. You know five
1: thousand years. Oh, that's insane. You can use the Mo- the Mongols. I mean, I listen to a lot of um, of history of of the Khans. I listen to this great uh, history yeah. podcast called Hardcore History by this yep. guy Dan Carlin, and uh, and I was you know it was just trolling back through all of this mongolian history you know this general subadai took this expeditionary force you know into the uh, over the urals and that uh, went into into russia and just caused fucking havoc there you know what i mean It just but they brought everything with them you know so it would make sense that they would bring those yeah. those traditions along with them on their warpath you know what i mean or their you know on the expeditionary Journey that they were on, you know, and uh, and that made sense to me because I always was, you know, uh, a big, you know, teller of the story. Again, as a cheesemonger, you know, people are like, "So who made the first cheese?" You know, and I'm like, yeah, great yeah. question." And I always say, you know, you know what I what I learned was, you know, there was a traveler in the Gobi Desert with a skin of goat's milk. That whole story, you know, the milk the milk curdled. But but I've always wondered that myself um, in terms of the actual origins, but. Look, looking through that history, um, especially the history of Mongolia, seems like, like the perfect way to do it. Like, so you have so much time that you can look at the effects of, uh, of the changing earth. Um, for yeah. these people, just to bring us back to, um, to your, your, your topic with – I mean your discussion with her, um, is it feed? Is it the process? Is it the availability of them to, to culture their own milk? Is it a combination of all of those things? Is that why it's going away?
2: well it's um, you know it's really two things that that have really happened in the last 100 years the 20th century 21st century and, and it's a long story but it's a but in a nutshell we got time been,
1: you
2: know catastrophic socio economic spiritual upheaval in mongolia since 1921 the, the, the way of life that organized nomadic herding and kept it sustainable for all those millennia disappeared with with the the communist revolution, right, uh, and the collectivization of the of the the herding structure of the country, basically 1959, you know the Soviet model, where where the the, the, the traditional herding was changed from the family structure yeah, to to, co- to uh,
1: cooperative to, farms there, yeah, the-
2: that were designed to scale up the process and and make it much more. Um, um, Professionalized, if you right. will, and um, and it, that worked, and, and there was some good things that happened during that period. It kept uh, it, it, it kept the the landscape relatively sustained in terms of you know the, the Mongolian steppes are very very fragile. They're very any they can be easily overgrazed.
1: Sure. Any
2: any flux in in rainfall can be enormously influential in terms of the productivity of these steps. So in 1993, when communism collapsed and uh, the the whole system was decollectivized, there was a massive movement of people out of the cities, particularly the capital city in Mongolia, back to the land. uh, And and, um, So between 1990 and 1999, as People left the cities to return to their traditional herding and nomadic lifestyle. The number of animals on the Mongolian steppes went from something like 26 million to 33 million. Wow. That's an an enormous increase. You need a lot more food food for that. Yeah,
1: a lot more food.
2: (laughs) And and a lot of this was goats. And the Mm -hmm. reason was because we've gone now to a market economy, and and the market for cashmere was – it's very, very lucrative. Yeah, and, still and is. Goats are really environmentally destructive. Yeah, uh, if, if they overgraze. By 2008, we now have 44 million animals. Oh. and and so the bottom line is is because of this this you know, sort of market response, this change in culture, and the other thing is that the traditional spiritual, re- religious, traditional system that kept Mongolian herders. Uh, in line, in terms of avoiding um, um, environmentally destructive practices, there were a lot of taboos in, in the traditional spiritual system that that protected the environment. All that knowledge was forgotten during and, and exterminated during the yeah. communist era. Brutal. And so now we have we have all you know this, this increase in number of animals and 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 herding families, and they don't have the traditional infrastructure, the, the, the practices. Um, and, and so we have a, a situation where where two thousand eight study, seventy percent of the steppes in, in Mongolia are, are classified as degraded, thirty one percent severely degraded. Jesus Christ. And, just because of over over overgrazing and, and you know, practices that that are unsustainable. And then you then on top of that, we've had climactic upheaval, not sure. just socio economic but just um, as as the global temperatures have shifted Mongolia has increased over the last last 80 years four times faster or higher in average temperature than, than the, the planet because it's, it's in this microenvironment that is very susceptible to climate shifts. So it's been a catastrophic shift in, in climate, and the repercussions have been threefold. Number one is our more frequent and... and um, and, and intense occurrences of these, what's called suits or winter disasters—yeah, severe, severe cold, snow and ice—that cause you know, millions and millions of animals to, to to die. They can't they can't survive the winter. On top of that, shifting rainfall patterns, causing extended droughts. Last sixty years, and and particularly last twenty years, we've seen increases in in the. You know, the droughts as well as the severe winters. And then overall, permafrost thawing up in the north of Mongolia where where it's, it's permafrost like in Siberia. And, and that's wreaking havoc on the forest steps up up to the north. So all this is happening when you have more animals than ever graze, yeah. overgrazing. Well, the
1: balance is all off. The, the balance is off. Is
2: is deeply off. And
1: uh, you get, you had a you had a you had a way of life that protected the steps and made cheese in a certain way that disrupt The you know, Soviet Union comes in changes all of that. A lot of the old knowledge is, lo- is lost, but the yep. animals keep reproducing, you know, and the people keep reproducing, but the earth has been neglected and then it ch- the earth changes on its own and then we accelerate that change and everything just gets messed up royally. That's how it seems to me, you yes. know.
2: You you just framed it beautifully, and and I'm going to argue in in cheese and culture that this is a microcosm. It's not just Mongolia. No, you know, there are wide swaths of of Africa that that are are you know pastoral nomads in the same boat. That we we could have absolute catastrophe. A little shift in weather patterns in in these fragile environments, and if you think the migration out of Africa into you know across the Mediterranean to Sicily and Italy right now is. You know, we we have these tragic situations of people.
1: Yeah, they're being displaced. They're going everywhere. It's a, it's they're, going,
2: a, they're it going everywhere. They're desperate. They're they're yeah. dying in the Mediterranean because of their creaky boats tip over. This is just the tip of the iceberg, I believe. Potentially, if if we if if, if there are you know continued changes in climate, we we could be in for some. I mean, absolutely catastrophic situation hey. mongolia is, is kind of the, the you know the canary in the mine because it's so sure. climate but it's not the only place
1: well, no. In Mongolia, you, like you say, you have a very, non, you know, markedly non-industrial way to produce cheese and a very non-industrial revolution way of life. You know, so you're going to see the effects of the earth here. We're insulated. You know, we're all in boxes or condominiums and our, you know, what I mean, or whatever, whatever, however, and however we live, so we can outlast a little bit longer. You know what I mean? Just because we've sort of insulated ourselves against Mother Earth a little bit here. But I mean, what do you see? When do you see, or how do you see, the effects of climate change affecting Europe cheesemaking or the United States cheesemaking? Is it the same thing, just a you know the same idea, just a different group of people? Or is it just a diff- you know, it's just the same thing?
2: Well, I mean, everywhere, you know, particularly for Europe, you know, the further south, the Mediterranean basin, which which is is you know largely marginal land. It's not very good agricultural land. That's why. Goats, goats, and sheep have always predominated. In, in, in yeah, they're not they're not as picky eaters,
1: right? I mean, they they well, they'll eat they eat different stuff, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Cow, cows need a lot of water. Yes. They need very lush vegetation. So, so, but but goats and sheep are, are you know much more capable of of living on on marginal land. But that makes that whole Mediterranean basin. Very vulnerable because it's, it's it's marginal land to begin with, and if, if there's extended if weather pattern shifts and extended droughts um, you know it could you know, cheesemakers there could very very well and particularly the the um, you know the, the Middle East and down into Af- Africans and yeah North, northern Africa that that whole Mediterranean region is is very vulnerable but but even you know even the the more well watered you know, Central Europe and, and Northwest Europe and so forth, any any changes um, in climate have an impact. They, they affect, you know, the ability to raise forages and pasture quality and, and on and on and on. So, you know, nobody is insulated. The United no. States, we, I mean, we, we've got, you know, massive forest fires right now because of drought Huge. in our, our east, you know, southeast. You know what's been happening out in the west with, with drought. Um,
1: but it's happening in the northeast, too. I mean, my family's up there, too. The, the reservoirs are all, are all shrinking. They didn't get enough. Didn't our,
2: our farmers up here are hurting. Yeah. We, we are dry. I know. Home. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, and that's the thing about climate change and global warming. It's not, you know, the one or two degree temperature difference. It seems like, a ah, big deal. I, you know, I, I don't mind if my winters are a little bit warmer. It's the shift in we- weather patterns and yeah. rainfall. Yeah. Because it is this complex, you know, energy system that that redistributes the solar energy coming in from the sun across the planet through the oceans and the the weather patterns and the precipitation patterns, and and you mess with that system. You're in trouble. The whole world (laughs) is is influenced. Right now, the Arctic, you know, circle is, is undergoing, as I understand it, a strange warming and and this whole um, you know, intensely cold region which should be up in the north pole now is is slipping down into siberia yeah and my fear is that, that that is going to i don't know this but i'm just i just read this the other day but i'm wondering if mongolia is in for another catastrophically cold winter if that if that you know weather pattern shifts down well, But we don't you know we don't the, the thing that 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 is is critical is to understand What causes these weather pattern shifts? And that's where the cheese crystals. Yeah. The fact that some of the crystals that we find growing on on these cheeses, calcium carbonate variants, are the same minerals that are in geological deposits that that archaeoclimatologists use to help reconstruct ancient. Wow. That's great. And it, it could very well be, could possibly be, that, As we study the formation of these crystals on the surface of our cheeses, and understand the mechanisms by which that happens, that it that may potentially help to inform the 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 archaeoclimatology area, so that they can better understand ancient crystallization phenomena that they're using to reconstruct. History. So, uh, that's
1: you know, so. Cheese is is cheese not the most amazing thing? Like how it it's just such a barometer. I always describe it as the earth working hard to preserve itself. You know, what I mean yeah, through yeah. through the it's, milk. It's it's it incredible.
2: It's, it's a living thing organism that can tell us, you know, many you know about about our world and about who we are in ways that we never imagined if, if we don't look and open the door lift up a few rocks to see what's under there.
1: Yeah, I love lifting up rocks. I like to see what's under there. That's why I love the cheese. It's a big rock, and I keep lifting it up all the time. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. I, uh, you know, um, I really want to thank you for coming on today. Um, it was a pleasure. Um, you know, it's been a long gap in between episodes for you, but uh, we're going to yeah. get you back on really soon. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, take a look out there at the earth and uh, know that the cheese is a representative of the earth, one of the best ones out there. So thanks, yeah. Dr. Kinstead. I really appreciate it. We'll be talking to you soon. And thank you all for listening. Tune in next week for more Cutting the Curd. Take care.